You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. And it's just me and Jared today. You there, Jared? Microphone check. You're there. I'm here. Good. Hey, you know what? Uh, We are good fans. We are doing this remote for the first time. Jared and I are not in the same room. We're in separate rooms, separate yeah, we'll places, separate houses. If that makes it better or not. See if it makes it better or not. But we're trying this because well, we're, we're technologically we speaking, advanced. We have a speaking gig together this weekend, so we thought we didn't want to see each other too much. In right. I, once a month is good for Jared, I think. Because <laughs> he's, he's very critical. Oh, come on. Yes. Anyway. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, our topic today is something that, you know, it would... I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about this a lot, and Jared does too, and I, and I write about it like my books are sort of centered on this kind of thing. Even if it's not explicit, it's in the background. But basically just, you know, the nature of the Bible and specifically the terms authority, inspiration, and revelation. And, and, and we're talking about this because a question that I get at least a lot, Jared, I don't know if you do, but a question I get a lot is like what happens to those ideas when we talk about the Bible as more really accenting its humanity in its setting, like how do those things work together? And so we thought we'd riff on that for a little while, because I think we both have some thoughts about it, not final thoughts. It's a work in progress, but... um, So I I might jump us off, Pete, of just asking you, because I think what jumped into my mind immediately was um, the idea that somehow those... I think you can't talk about those three words without talking about the word inerrancy in a lot of circles. Okay. And so maybe connect, you know, why is this an issue whenever we yeah. start talking about the humanity of the Bible? Why does that matter when we start talking about authority, revelation? Right. What, what's the connection? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it because it's because I'm not an inerrantist that that's why the question comes up. And so it's like, well, then you believe there are errors in the Bible. Well, it's, it's not, to me, those aren't even issues. Those aren't even the right categories to talk about the Bible. But those are the categories that a lot of evangelicalism is used to when it comes to the Bible and, and why the Bible should have, let's say, authority in our lives. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think we're, we're, you can talk about authority more easily or inspiration more easily or revelation more easily if you also think of the Bible as an errand. But and if you why, don't, why is that? Like, 
what I mean, I guess that's my question is why do you think it is that within uh, evangelicalism that becomes a thing? Like, okay, if it's not an error, it's no longer authoritative. Where did that well, come from? Well, I don't have no idea where it came from, from the pit of hell. <laughs> now, At least just, you're not dramatic about it. I'm just kidding, folks. I tend to get a little bit snarky about this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, don't, I'm, I don't know where that connection came from explicitly, and it's probably not any one place or one time necessarily. But, you know, if, if, if you think of the Bible as being like a divine product in some sense, it therefore has authority and it will therefore not have errors in it. And, you know, those two things sort of tend to go together because a divinely produced book or inspired book uh, will by definition not have errors in it and therefore it will be fully authoritative for our lives. And, you know, I, I mean, I talk to people and I've read stuff where, you know, Mark Knoll, for example, talks about how in America the Bible has taken on this different kind of aura about it because, you know, we don't have a papacy here in the American church. You know, we're not, this was not founded as a Roman Catholic country. There's no magisterium, there's no hierarchy, but when people settled and then spread across the country, you know, circuit riders would go and sort of start churches and the authority was the Bible. Not a, not, a, not a magisterium of some sort. So because they didn't have authority from an institution or hierarchy, they needed the authority from somewhere, right. and the Bible was the place to, to, to place it. And I guess, you know, that, not, not to sort of be simplistic, but, you know, this is the day after Reformation Day, we're recording this. And, uh, you know, the Reformation does play a role in that for, for, you know, for good or for ill, like most movements in church history. But, um, you know, the Bible is the, the, the authority for the church and not what people say. And, you know, I get it. It's a nice idea if it works. See, that, that's, that's my problem because then you start reading the Bible looking for it to be an, an authoritatively or an inherently authoritative book, but then you start just coming up with these well-known obstacles to that, and then you ask yourself, well, what do you do with that? And you have a choice. You can just sort of become an apologist away and, in a way and, and you know, defend the Bible against those things that the Bible is, seems to be doing, or, you know, you sort of go the other way and say, well, the Bible is just a bunch of nonsense, a pack of lies, and, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. And, and I think that comes from maybe sort of stilted ways of thinking about authority or just the nature of the Bible or what does it mean to have something inspired and what does it mean for God to reveal, right? And I, and I think a lot of that is like it's very top-down kind of thinking and not really top-down and bottom-up, if that makes any sense. Does that make, does that make sense to you, Jared? Because if it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make sense to anybody else. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. Neither am I. <laughs> now, what, what I'm saying is that, you know, when we talk about revelation, right, it's top-down. God is revealing something down to people, but the thing is that so much of the Bible seems to be more bottom-up thinking as well. What like, would be an example? That's where I maybe get tripped up. Okay. What would be an example of bottom-up? I get how God reveals from on high. Right. How would it be bottom-up? Well, I think, for example, a, a good example that comes up a lot is God is a divine warrior who's sort of bloodthirsty. And 
God is there to defeat other nations and you can take their land. And that's the way God is, quote, revealed is as a warrior who goes to war and smites enemies or, you know, punishes, you know, with physical harm of some sort, his own people who disobey. So I think that's a picture of God that is not so much revealing what God is like from on high, but it's the way God is experienced in particular times and particular moments and particular cultures. And so for me, that's, I mean, it's not either or for me, it's more, this is an experience of God, but God allows himself to be understood and articulated in ways that make sense to people at particular times and places. So that's why I know it's, it's, authoritative and revelatory. So this is what God is actually like. I, I think to me, that's a difficult thing to sort of get past because you have to do that with everything in the Bible then, you know, that looks somewhat, you know, morally suspect, for example, we've had, you know, Brian Zond and Greg Boyd on talking about divine violence. That That is something that actually generates this discussion of authority and inspiration and, and, um, and revelation and inerrancy. Okay. So, so let's kind of, regroup on these terms. So okay. we're talking about revelation. And when we talk about revelation, we're saying that something has been revealed mm-hmm. and you're saying top down is, is revelation revealed by God about God. And then top down or bottom up revelation would be something revealed by people about God. I, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't see. I wouldn't use revelation for bottom up. Okay. I would more like say this is how people experience the revelation and it's articulated in their own language. Oh, okay. So you would back it up and say the revelation is the experience and the words on the page are a description of that. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. So, so the Bible in that sense, and again, this is, this is starting a discussion. It doesn't end a discussion, but the way I would articulate the Bible in that respect is it is, the articulation of pilgrims of faith and how they're experiencing God. And I also do want to say, and I do say, I believe this, although I can't explain it, that God is also involved in that very process. Like God is okay with humanity imagining God in ways that make sense in their time and place. And I, I just think the Bible's full of that sort of thing. I mean, I, I, it's almost like where in the Bible do you not see that sort of thing? You know, wh- where do you get a God who's just sort of unaffected by human culture the way this God is described? Right. You know, that, that, that's sort of where I, where I, I start with that. I, I don't start with it, but it's, that's a, it's a central idea for me that is there any way of talking about God that isn't immediately woven into human experience and my answer is no i don't think there is anything like that right Why? So because the bible doesn't the bible doesn't like allow any other option as far as i'm concerned yeah so experience then becomes elevated which i think makes people a little bit afraid right uh, of that but it, it actually reminds me i think it's the gospel of john right it's one of it's either one of the epistles of john or the gospel of john where it begins by saying that which we've seen that which we've heard these are the things we testify to you about. And and I think that's a good articulation of, you know, it's, he uses experiential language in that text Mm -hmm. and just says, and this is what we're testifying about. And it's similar to what you're saying is that the revelation is the thing I experienced. And these words are me trying to articulate that to you. Yeah. And and the revelation is never experienced outside of our humanity. 
Well, yeah, right, right. right. You can only, because we use la- things like language, culture, right. that we can't escape as human beings. Yeah, I mean, as, as soon as, I mean, put it this way, as soon as a revelatory act happens, it's already deeply connected and enmeshed with human experience. And like you said before, that that's, that's can make people nervous, but I'm not sure what other options there are. Right. That's what I was going to say. The truth is we wouldn't even, I'm not sure what mechanism we would have to even know if we had some other kind of experience. Right. Because we're always, we don't have the God's eye view. Cause so, we're people. Yeah. We yeah. are people. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to get philosophical because I'm not a philosopher by a remote stretch, but I, I, I've heard people talk about how many Christians are sort of content with a platonic God who's up there, out there someplace and sort of make little cameo appearances and, and we're getting this God straight somehow and we have to struggle to try to interpret this God correctly. And, you know, I, I just look at the Bible and it's, it's wonderful diversity and ambiguity and it's like we're almost, we're put in, I think the Bible is almost, well, I should say almost because I don't know what God is up to, but the Bible is almost designed to put us on this quest for trying to commune with God and understand God. And that's never apart from how, from who we are and when we are and, and how we think. And I think God can handle that. Right, and I think that my, my point is that we're getting to back to the Bible about inspiration and authority and that sort of thing. I think the Bible itself models that, right? Because of its it, because it's it's rather ambiguous in places, and it's it's so ancient in places, and it's so diverse in places that it doesn't. I mean, I guess it doesn't work well as that inherently authoritative text that basically gives you information. I'm not sure if that's the Bible's main purpose is to give us information in a sort of a neutral brute kind of sense that we then sort of accept or not accept. I think we're actually invited to engage in on a quest for a, a religious experience for uh, you know a quest for theological understanding. And I think the Bible is there to to you know, put us on that path and to work with us on that path. And, and that's a very different kind of authority. You know, that's, that's yeah. not, a, that's not a top down authority. It's more like a setting a vision kind of authority. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that. Cause I think that leads, you know, we talked about revelation, the thing, the things that are being revealed and experiences rather than, than the text. And it's always mediated. We're always human and seeing it through our own experience how does that connect with this idea of authority? Because I think, you know, you said at the beginning, for a lot of people, the reason it's authoritative, the reason I listen to it, again, I, maybe we should define what we mean by authoritative, but, but the reason it's authoritative is because I think it has this top-down, it has this top-down yes. power to it, that God right. has revealed it directly to us, and without that connection directly to God, if it's not inerrant or even just the Word of God directly, then I think it gets fuzzy at that point as to why we consider it authoritative. Right, because it's easy to, again, use terms like authority when you're thinking in terms of what is authority if not top-down, right? That's, that's what authority sort of means. And it's authoritative, let's say, 
to inform us about what we should believe and how we should live. And I think that's a comforting thing to have a Bible like that. But, uh, you know, I remember Brian McLaren, you know, he's written this and I've heard him say this uh, at some place, but, you know, the Bible is sort of like the constitution for the church. And that's part of the American experience where its purpose there is to lay things out for us so that we know what to do and what to think. The problem is that it's, it's so ancient that it has to be exegeted and we disagree about how that should happen. So functionally speaking, like where does the authority lie then? Does it lie in the text or does it lie in our ability to sort of do it? it I have a question in in terms of like, what would even mean to have authority lie in the text? Yeah. Like, I don't actually know what that means in the sense, like for me, the constitution, the authority doesn't lie in the text, but I mean, it almost like some sort of like maybe uh, penal system or some way like, and if you violate this, then there are people who are more powerful than you who will right. punish you for it. Right. Like, you know, what? do you have any other thoughts on how can a text be authoritative? No, I don't know if it can because, you know, pr- functionally, you know, practically speaking, when we speak of biblical authority, I think what it comes down to is the authority of a particular body to enforce a particular way of understanding the text. That's why we have different denominations. Right. You know, right. and so it's, it really, it's, see here, here's the irony. Okay. In biblical authority, it's always in a sense incarnated in particular bodies. Right. Right. So th- that's, that's actually making the point for me. <laughs> you know? exactly. yeah. yeah. And maybe the Bible is set up though, to, to be appropriated in different ways because the Bible has these ambiguities and it's ancient and it's so diverse. And within the Bible, people are changing their views on God anyway. You know, I mean, maybe the Bible set up like that and maybe we should simply accept that, you know, we have to think in terms of things like authority and revelation and inspiration, not purely a top down delivery of information, but an engagement and interaction between God and humanity in some way that's utterly mysterious and inexplicable, but yet we sort of live into that. And as a result, we may, maybe we shouldn't kill each other because we disagree on how God should be articulated or imagined. And I'm using the word imagined very intentionally. Walter Brueggemann likes talking about imagination. And I think that's a great way of putting it. So what would you say, like, is the is authority a useful term for you when it comes to the Bible, or would you say it's probably not really that useful anymore? I don't know. I think I, I I can't talk about like in general, but I think for me, I'm still thinking too much about even what I think I mean by that for right. it to be useful. And I think it's got so much baggage because when you say biblical authority to like your average Joe Blow Christian out there there's there's a lot going into that phrase that i i think is actually at the end of the day not always helpful and and will obstruct some rethinking that probably needs to be done for a lot of people it it creates barriers to discussing it's like you know Diana Butler Bass was on a while back and she talked about um code words right, right. and that's that's a code word that you know, you're either inside or outside if you use words like that. And and I'd rather try to describe what I think the Bible's doing and then let the labels come later. 
you know, so for me, it's not that important to nail those kinds of things down at this point in my life. So a calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, it does sound though important that like there's a danger there's a danger of wielding kind of authority. Like I just think it's a really good picture that you painted about authority. There, there's really no sense in which the text is authoritative, but it must be animated or incarnated in an institutional body. Yeah. And when you conflate or when you assume that you have the authority and not just an authority or if you don't assume that diversity and tread lightly or humbly with that, that can be dangerous. I think that's how a lot of denominational leaders get themselves yeah. into trouble. Is not so people get hurt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause when you think that way that, you know, there, there is an authority here and it's the Bible and it depends on, on exegeting it properly, which of course I'm doing. Right. And if you exegete it properly, then you have the mind of God. And I just, in my mind's eye, I imagine God smiling and saying, have you ever read this thing? Don't you see 
how how this book is i'm going to use the word designed although again i don't claim to understand what god does about all this stuff but you know the bible seems at least highly resistant to that kind of use because you know what what is authoritative about the book of chronicles retelling the history of Samuel and Kings in such a way that the two contradict each other, or at least they're in significant tension. A few would deny that they're in significant tension with each other, but what is authoritative? What's the authoritative word? Well, they, they speak different kinds of authoritative words. You know, they say different things about God and about Israel. And, and, you know, what, what do we accomplish by trying to cram it all together and say, well, the Bible would never do that because it's inspired and revelatory and authoritative and therefore inerrant. Then you have to sort of avoid how the Bible seems to be working. And if we have ways of thinking about the Bible, if we use code words that we have to spend most of our time defending because the Bible doesn't seem to be very receptive to those words, I just think we got to rethink some things, which, you know, plenty of Christians have. Right. Right. We're, like the, we're not inventing here, like, oh my goodness gracious, no one's ever noticed this. But, you know, with the people that you and I, um, you know, have, have associated with and still associate with friends of ours and, and, you know, people who are part of the Bible for normal people and all that sort of stuff, that's, that's exactly the question people have because they're, they're, they're looking for language to move out of the paradigm that, they, that they've always known, that they feel doesn't work. But, okay, what language do I use now? Well, I think, yeah, I think it's important too that, you know, you talked about the people we interact with. And one thing that came to mind that I hear a lot is how disorienting it can feel to have this Bible. Because we talk, we've been talking almost negatively about authority here, but there's something really safe and anchoring about an authority as well. Right, right. So when you lose that, it can feel really disorienting, like you're just out in orbit. Um, like what grounds me now? Um, what what keeps me um, on this path here? And so I think I think that's important too because there's some there's something that I keep wanting to come back to. Not to there's a tension I think between wisdom and authority, or between laws, rules, and authority kind of on one side, and this struggle that you talk about, the struggle, the engagement, the life of wisdom, the walking the path, the experience. There's a, there's a tension there, and I've just seen a lot of people come out of uh, churches where once they lose inerrancy, so once they kind of say, eh, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I think there's, you know, two creation accounts, and maybe there's good reasons for it, but they don't sort of line up. Um, then it's like the house of cards, and then they say, okay, well, then in what way is this authoritative? And if it's don't have authority... I just think we have to recognize the, right, the, the sociological or like emotional impact right. of feeling unchained from the tether of the authority. Well, here, I, I, I completely agree with that because there is an emotional attraction to it, which in and of itself isn't wrong. But see, when people say, okay, they have this notion of authority, but then they look at two creation accounts or, you know, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels and they can't be reconciled. Right, so they say. Well, I don't know what to do. I need to, f- I need to find, I need to find that authority, while still acknowledging these things. Right. And the problem with that that I see is, you're still thinking in terms of the old paradigm. 
So you're still looking for a similar kind or an analogous kind of authority that does more or less the same kind of thing, but still accounting for some of these, let's call them aberrations in the text. Right. It still functions the same way. It still functions, right? Rather than maybe saying something like, okay, maybe I, maybe I need to step out by faith here and be willing to recast the, for lack of a better term, authoritative nature of this text. What is it authoritative to do? I know, Jared, you had a really good analogy. Uh, I think it's in Genesis for normal people. Do you remember what that? Is? I, th- I think it was there, but you sort of com- compared like the the Bible's authority to, let's say, the authority of something like it might have been even like Watership Down or some novel. Oh yeah, novel? okay, yeah, what, yeah. We talked, yeah, we talked about like I think it was more. Was I, it? I don't remember. Maybe like even Harry Potter or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Well. And, well. Okay. So I want to go even bigger because I think. This also ties to understanding the function, because I'm just imagining people's concerns with what we're talking about. And one of the things I think is it's starting to poke at the role of the church as the moral police. Yeah. And if, if, and, and what code book or what's the handbook that we have as, the, as church leaders to hold people accountable to the moral code that we, you know, right. as a community, we right. only have the Bible. So if you're starting to say that there, it's, there are errors in there or that maybe there are, uh, it's not as authoritative, then I feel like you're taking away that. So anyway, I think, I think we have to tie this idea of authority to somehow what the Bible does. Of course, we keep coming back to this at the biggest questions of what is the Bible? What's it meant to do? But that right. big question of what, what does the Bible have to do with morality or ethics and how do we use it there? Uh, I had a good friend of mine, you know, when um, the Bible tells me so came out, he said, I really like this, but the problem I have is that it, the Bible can't function as a guide for morality this way. And I said, yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, You know, let's talk about that. But yeah, I, I I see that the, the, I guess, see again, maybe, Maybe the Bible's, let's say, role in morality is not, again, in that top-down delivery of information, because even there, the Bible has ambiguities, and it's just—it's amazing to me how how little the Bible actually tells you what to do. Well, what do you mean by that? There are all these laws. Yeah, name any law, and we can talk about what's not said. And how much we have to fill in, you know, um, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what does that mean? Okay, don't do any work. Great. What does work mean? You know, right. and, and you have to start thinking. See, you mentioned the word wisdom before, Jared. I think that's very important because I think the key to a biblically oriented morality, what's missing there is wisdom, which is about the ability to discern the moment. And to even be creative, keeping in step with the spirit and presence of God, right? It's, it's not just a matter of finding the line in the Bible and saying, it says this, therefore, but it's about interacting and engaging with the Bible and discerning the moment 
and deciding, you know, what to do. See, if, if we didn't think that, the church would never have stood up against slavery. Right? I mean, talk about, you can make an excellent, an excellent biblical case for the abiding significance and morality of enslaving people. You can make a great moral argument for that on the basis of Scripture. Why do people not do that? Because they take trajectories from Scripture and they rethink biblical morality in light of just who they are and where they are and what they've experienced. So I think we, we can't avoid that when we're talking about the nature of biblical authority. So where then does moral, we're getting like so philosophical here, yeah. but then I just imagine, again, I'm putting on a different hat um, here and saying, okay, at that point then, our moral compass, if you will, is located outside the Bible. And, or, or are you saying that the diversity of the Bible actually maybe has several trajectories and that discernment in mm-hmm. the community of faith with God's uh, guidance in the spirit of that community at that moment helps us sort of, it's kind of a choose your own adventure. Like the, the, <laughs> the threads are kind of all there and which way we go needs to be discerned as a community. Yeah. And, and again, I, I don't say it lightly because, you know, you can't harness this or package it, but if you believe that God is real, then you have to bring into this fact or the, you know, the, the presence of God by the Spirit in the life of the community, which doesn't guarantee answers. I mean, I hear that a lot, that, you know, ask the Spirit for guidance, the Spirit will tell you exactly what to do. Maybe not. But you're still on this quest, you're on this adventure, as you put it, to, to seek out what does it mean to live well right now. That's a wisdom activity. That's not a proof-texting biblical authority activity. And the Bible itself, like you said, because it sort of sets multiple trajectories for us, we have to sort of choose. And, you know, there is a liberating trajectory in the Bible. But there's also a slavery is just fine trajectory. Right. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, why is that? Well, because different biblical writers at different times were addressing different things for different circumstances, blah, blah, blah. That's true. We, and that's the kind of thing, I want to look at that and say, oh no, what happens to biblical authority? I want to look at that and say, this is amazing. This is fantastic. This is exactly the kind of thing that we need so, so that the Bible doesn't replace the Spirit of God, which is a problem, right? You can have the Bible be so authoritative, namely its proper interpretation, which is located in a certain social religious structure, you know, but the, the Bible itself becomes the authority when in fact it's not the Bible, it's God. God's the authority. And, and you know, people like Walter Brueggemann and others are forever telling us how, you know, God is always turning the tables. As soon as Israel thought it could rely on structures, those tables were turned on them, whether it's sacrifice or law-keeping or, or Sabbath-keeping or a number of things in the Bible. It's like it's adhering to that is not the point of this. And on, and on top of that, you know, again, we're sort of like, there's so much happening here in this discussion with the Bible and Revelation, et cetera. But, you know, Benjamin Summer, we had him on as an early guest, um, I guess probably spring or early summer of, of, uh, of this year, 2017. But, you know, he, he talks about why the biblical laws contradict each other. Because even in the Bible, 
you know, ancient Israelites are trying to interpret the revelation of God for their moment and for their time. So the slave laws in Exodus are different than the very same slave laws in Deuteronomy. They don't say the same thing. That's not a problem. That's exactly the point. You know, so if we're going to talk about biblical authority, we need to locate that discussion in the Bible's own diversity, which already reflects the need to reflect on God in different situations and different times and under different circumstances. And that's not a package. You can't like hand that to people and say, here's what biblical authority means. You actually are on a journey, on a quest at that point to try to discern it. Well, there's something, there's something I think wonderfully ironic about what we're talking about here. You know, maybe I can try to capture it in a, in a statement here, but it sounds like, the revelation of God often is actually the very thing that upends the structures and institutions of authority right? and the interpretations. So Mm -hmm. when people have an experience of God, that's when the tables get turned and the thing that we thought isn't the case. And I think the prophets are a really good example of that. So God, God shows up, this word of God shows up. And for those who have ears to hear, the word is saying, that the thing you thought had authority doesn't. Right. These structures, the, you know, uh, the language, the institutions, the interpretations, anytime, any, I feel like anytime a group of people determine that they have the authority of God, they put God in this box, that it is precisely the revelation of God that comes and disrupts that. Yeah, you can say that putting the God in the box is a form of idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't say that just to score points, but I think you, you could make that point. And, and that's what we need to be careful about defining words like authority and revelation and inspiration that actually sell the Bible short and that try to capture God and control God. Because, you know, I mean, we all do that, right? But I, I think that's, you know, th- that's why looking at the Bible differently than this thing that reveals a moral code for us is very important to do because even there we can capture very quickly and we can make insiders and outsiders, we can make a list real quick right. of the Bible. But what if the Bible doesn't capture everything for all time? What if it actually sets trajectories? in its diverse ways and invites us to explore together. What does it mean to look like Jesus right here and right now? See, to me, that's biblical morality and you can't script it. That's, that's the beauty of it. And that's the frustration of it for, for those. And I understand this who are used to particular ways of thinking about authority. And yeah, I guess it gets to inspiration too. Not, I don't want to jump on. You know, a- I thought that was a good turn. Yeah. Go, go yeah. there. But, you know, inspiration, uh, and I've talked about this a lot. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I, I, I still think of inspiration of the Bible in a similar way that we think about Jesus and the incarnation. There's a mystery there where, you know, you see Jesus walking down the street and you don't say to yourself, oh, well, there goes the second person of the Trinity, right? You don't, you don't think that. You just see a human being who eventually suffers and dies. And, you know, there's very little you can point to 
in the life of Jesus as we have it in the Gospels. And we can say, well, obviously God. And people say, well, he was raised from the dead. Okay, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that doesn't happen to God. So that happens to people. <laughs> right? God right. raised Jesus from the dead. That's, that's a very fundamental New Testament teaching. So, so the thing is that Jesus is, the, the, the mystery of the divine is clothed in the concrete obviousness of the humanity of it all. And I think of the Bible in a similar way, in an analogous way, that you know, th- there's something about this book that has been embraced and accepted by the church and you know, three-quarters of our Bible, the Old Testament by Jews, for a very, very long time. And it's just a sort of above my pay grade to say none of that matters. But I want to... Um, I, I don't have a choice but to engage the divine through this concrete human thing, which is historically situated, which is, you know, by people, again, writing out of passions and concerns and circumstances and their own limitations, you know. Um, so I, to, to think of the Bible as, you know, like that, that is inerrant, I just think is a category mistake. You know, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think we have to also, I mean, you may have a fuller understanding of this, but in my mind, the only reason we use the word inspiration is is because of the translation of what Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Right. All Scripture right. is God breathed, useful yeah. for all these things. So, and we translate that God breathed, um, you know, is inspired. And right. So I think, and for me, that's even problematic because in its origins, it's it's sort of metaphorical um, uh-huh. to have things be God breathed. What does that What does that mean? You know, um, you, C.S. Lewis does a good job with this in the chronicles where I think it's, you know, Aslan is creating by singing um, right. kind of thing. But even that, of course, is, is still metaphorical uh, in some sense. So right. I think it's a problematic word because we're really getting it from one text, one translation of a text that's highly metaphorical. And, and we're making something out of it that's not metaphorical, that becomes very logical and analytical. Right. And right. even scientific and precisionistic and Forgive me, Western. I know it's easy to take slaps at the Western world, but you know we've been running things for a bit too long. I think you know it, you know people have mused, what if the gospel had gone east instead of west, and and what would it have looked like, and 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 you know maybe stayed Middle Eastern where there was more of an understanding of mystery and and um, even mystical language that Paul uses to describe the gospel, like being in Christ and Christ in us, that's mystical language. That's not logical, analytical language. And you have that one verse, you know, in one letter that says inspired, and, and we've taken that and run with it. And, and anything else, like, you know, whether if you see contradictions in the Bible, you always have to filter those things through the, quote, clearer text, the clearer teaching in Second Timothy. Well, the point is that that's not a clear teaching. It's metaphorical. It's not, it's not obvious what it means for a text to be inspired. And then for, what, is it, what is it inspired for, but for, you know, for correction, for reproof, and a few other things, which is, it's, it's, um, I would say it is useful for the wisdom task. Right of being disciplined, of being, of growing and of maturing, not of downloading information that we call inerrant because it's revealed by God as if, you know, God's a CEO drafting something and handing it to us and say, do this. You know, I just, again, I think God is laughing at us when we think that way. Right. Well, I think it comes back to this human, I don't know, Paul, you know, 
I think of Paul when he talks about the law and one of his critiques of the law is it's sort of made for children, but eventually you, you grow up. And in some ways that growing up is this maturity because in some ways when we make the Bible out to be an authoritative rule book, we're asking us to have to check our moral muscles and our minds at the door and just download this information. Let me be on my way Mm -hmm. where growth and maturity and wisdom come precisely from having to work it out. From, yes. from working those moral muscles, do, doing it wrong, going yeah. the wrong direction, learning from our mistakes, um, wrestling with the text and, and not oversimplifying, but problematizing. What does this look like? And I think, you know, we've had several guests on the show, um, Jewish guests who really articulate, I think, and give us a, an example of, of how, the, how Jewish people do this so well, where it's the growth of a community and the growth in my personal wisdom grows through not downloading authoritative mm-hmm. bumper stickers, but through problematizing text and asking a lot of questions and wrestling with it and disagreeing and yelling at my neighbor that we're eating dinner with and going back and forth in that kind of community. So I think there's something still to that with authority connected to law, rule book, and there's something really safe and easy about that. Mm-hmm. It's hard to go to the gym every day and work that muscle out. It absolves us, I think you're right, it absolves us of the responsibility to be human mm. right? by having this downloaded thing that we just sort of react to. But, but again, I keep coming back to the Bible simply does not allow that. Right. You know, and you know, one defini- I mean, a definition of inerrancy, there are all kinds of inerrantists. Some are really highly literalistic and, and other and, and narratives recognize things like metaphor and whatever they that's that they don't have a problem right. but typically the definition of inerrancy that's given is um whatever is you know expressly taught in scripture or um i guess in some sense implied i'm trying I'm trying to remember the exact language that's used but something that is that is taught or you can infer from it a teaching. Yeah, that is like, it's true in everything that it affirms. Affirms or teaches, right? That's right. Everything that affirms or teaches. And I gave a talk a few years ago of all places at the Evangelical Theological Society where I said, okay, here's something the Bible affirms and teaches. There are multiple gods up there and Yahweh is the best out of all of them. The Old Testament affirms that. In fact, it teaches it. There are Psalms that talk about it explicitly. The Exodus story makes no sense without it. You know, so what do we do with that? Because I, I, I was very blunt. I said, I don't believe there are multiple gods. I don't think Yahweh has a board meeting every once in a while, like in the book of Job or Psalm 82. But I do think this is what the ancient Israelites thought. And so, you know, in what sense now do we talk about in an Aaron Bible? I think it's a category mistake. I think it's you know, I don't, I don't think this is an error to talk about a pantheon or a boardroom of gods or the divine council, as it's called in the Bible. I don't think that's an error. I think this is what happens when humans at certain points in time in history, when they commune with God and they think of God according to the categories that they understand, because we're all sociological and cultured beings. Right. And, 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 and it, also, okay with that. it also puts your back against the wall. Because, I mean, there's something here, too, where you, you, you will make yourself irrelevant if you continue to hold those. Because what you're basically saying also could apply to, say, Genesis. Uh-huh. Where you say, well, it teaches and affirms that there's a solid dome above the earth. 
And so now our choice is either we affirm that or we affirm what we've observed through science. Right. And so that's a really tough choice to have to make that. Or back to Chronicles, for example, not, not to get too detailed, but the story of Manasseh in Second Kings. Manasseh is the worst king Israel ever had, and he is the cause of the exile. And in Chronicles, well, no, he repents and he prays and God restores him to his kingship. And it's the fact that really the people disobey that the Israelites are sent into exile, right? So how do you, how do you think of authority with a Bible that acts that way? And my point is that I think, um, uh, you know, this is an indication to us that, you know, the way we describe, the way we macro describe the Bible, the big picture, I just think we need to hold on onto that stuff loosely and, and, you know, realize we are all on a journey of wisdom and not of simply downloading information and getting that right is not the first thing you have to do in order to, let's say, live a life of faith, but it's what people of faith do preferably in community, not just by yourself. Yeah. And, and having, the, having the disposition or growing in the disposition of being okay with that uncertainty within a yes. community where we're just, I don't know. I mean, right. getting really comfortable with saying that over time. Right. Well, then the question that comes up a lot is like, well, then what makes Christianity different from any other religion? And yeah, we're just I, going all over the spectrum now. I know, but I'm, we're not going to answer that. But my, my response to that, the quick response, the 10-second response is, you're still thinking according to the old paradigm, right? That there has to be a certain kind of information that we can be certain of as being right and true that defeats other ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm not against, like, discussing the differences or even debating the differences between different religions. All I'm saying is that the fact that you're going to you lose certainty on that issue doesn't mean that the old way of thinking about the Bible is correct. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I see the point, yes, if we lose this, we lose something else. The fact is that just because you're losing something else that's important to you doesn't mean that the other observation is wrong right the, I, hope, I hope that makes sense to the good people listening yeah and and, and just <laughs> does point out to me that these are all so interconnected and we keep saying that on the podcast but it just keeps proving itself over and over that you know we start with the question of what does authority mean and how does it apply to the bible and we end with you know how does this make what what's unique about christianity or is that even a good question um, how do we how do we be in dialogue with and alongside people of other faiths? Mm-hmm. And these are all these are all connected. So I think that's why you know I often end with the pff, I don't know, and it, you know it reminds me of of Paul in, in Romans where he spends eleven chapters it seems like <laughs> trying to like argue through this stuff like he's processing it all and he's and then he ends just with his doxology, which for me would just be a lot of a string of curse words, but for him he's more <laughs> holy than me. So he ends chapter 11 with it's just like, oh, the mysteries of God. I right. can't figure it out because it's like trying to systematize all of this just gets, it's too big. You know, because I think, it, I think if I can sort of invade Paul's mind a little bit, I think he's sort of trying to quasi-systematize things 
for 11 chapters, but then he just, it's not that he gives up. He just realizes that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to articulate this the best that I can, but at the end of the day, oh, the mystery. Right, right. right. See, to me, that's a great model for theology. Yes. Right? We get to argue and debate, and I think I'm more right than you are, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with fundamentally, let's say, the mind of God, and like, how dare we? Right. I think that's a great, that's a great distinction of like following Paul in the trajectory of we still go through the struggle and the debate and the coming to our own convictions. Right. But at the end of it, are we going to open up to doxology of the mystery? Yeah. Or are we going to quickly try to tie a knot in it and tie a bow and package it and say, Oh, and that's it. And tie up and handcuff other people who disagree. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that note of mystery is maybe a good place for us to consider stopping here. And you know what? Maybe, Jared, let's talk about revisiting this at some point, because this is one of these never-ending kind of discussions. And, and um, you know, I'd like to continue it at some point in time, because I just think it's – that's the thing you start poking at this. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the questions come up. And I, I, I you know, I, I never get tired of thinking through these things. And, you know, I've, I, I've articulated things differently in my mind, just talking here for 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, and I also want to just plug your book, Pete, Inspiration and Incarnation. Some of that toward the end of our conversation, you were kind of talking about how you conceive of inspiration more incarnationally. And you dive into that in that book. You know, the offhand, the subtitle of, of Inspiration Incarnation? Uh, nope. It's been 10 years. I don't remember the title. It's about like the problems of the Old Testament or something. Oh, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. That's yeah. what so I know your subtitles better than you do, Pete. You probably do. I don't know my kids' names. That's the problem. Once I, have <laughs> I hope your kids animals. don't listen to this podcast. I also know have seven animals. I don't remember their names anyway. I just yell a lot at them. But, um, but I, I think that would be a good book for people. If, if this is an interesting conversation, I think it's a good primer to kind of start the yeah. conversation, especially if you come from a a more uh, um, inerrantist background. Right. And, you know, if I can plug something I haven't written yet, the, uh, the book I'm working on now is basically about looking at the Bible as a wisdom book rather than an information download book and, and what difference that makes. And um, so a lot of this stuff is just feeding into all that stuff too, having conversations like this. But uh, anyway... All right. Well, uh, again, we want to also point you guys, if you want to continue these conversations uh, like Pete and I have, um, you can do that with our Patreon community. If you want to head to uh, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, where we um, have a Slack group and we have different channels. One of them is hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. Another one is evil in the Bible. Another is science in the Bible. And it's just people being able to chat with each other and explore those questions in, a, in an environment where that's welcome. So we'd encourage you to check that out. Um, is there anything else you want to plug before we sign off, Pete? Mm, not particularly. I think just visit me on, on my website, Bible for Normal People, and find out about uh, the conversations happening there as well. And you can find out stuff about speaking gigs and, and other books that I've written. But uh, always welcome to show up there. We have a great time. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll see everyone uh, next week.